Good morning, everyone. I am Pastor David. Happy Father's Day to all of you who are fathers, fathers-to-be who have fathers. And uh, if you had forgotten a Father's Day gift this morning, one of the gifts that's available in the parking lot, actually, uh, that you might want to take your dad over there and show him the World Vision experience. Um, our family has seen it already. It is a fantastic thing for all of us to see and to learn what is going on around the world. So I want to give, give a plug for that as well. Now this morning my job is to connect the dots uh, of all that we have learned uh, from First Corinthians. So let me begin. It's, it's a tall order. In fact, believe it or not, I have about 43 slides. And so we are going to go through in a rapid fire here this morning. And most of the Bible verses are on the screen, so you, if you need the Bible, that's fine. But all of those Bible verses are on the screen, so sit back and relax and, and get an overview of why we did what we did. Why we did First Corinthians uh, beginning back in January, almost six months ago, and why we spent six months studying it. So let me begin with the story. Uh, story is told of an adult Sunday school class. Uh, that was studying a book by Randy Frazee called The Connecting Church. And, and this class spent uh, several weeks studying it. Part of the reason is that Randy Frazee in this book addresses one of the challenges faced by larger churches, how to provide meaningful relationships in the context of a larger church. And obviously, this particular Sunday school class felt so serious about this issue that they chose to study this for about several weeks. And then, on the last Sunday of the class, the class leaders, having taught, the, taught from the book, stood up and basically said, next week, we are beginning this particular book. And he went on to suggest another book this class would be studying. And so one person from the class raised his hand and asked the question. Are we going to do anything with the principles that we have learned from this particular book? And the leader asked, what do you mean? And the person who asked the question said, Here, this is one of the best-selling books that addresses the question on how to provide meaningful relationships in the context of large churches. And we are a larger church. And are we not going to apply these principles within our class and make sure that all of our classmates are connected in meaningful relationships right here at the church? This frustrated the class leader, who viewed his role as just teaching and leaving the application to individuals. But it also frustrated the person who asked the question, because as a class they had spent quite a bit of time studying the book, but moving on without putting those principles into practice in their class. And similarly, as you know, if you have been coming here to this church since January that we have, nearly, we have spent nearly six months studying the book of 1 Corinthians. 
And we would be remiss if we don't stop and ask some questions. Now, to be sure, individual applications are left to individuals and their respective families. For example, two weeks ago when I preached on the principles of financial giving, I simply told you what our family does. I did not ask any of you to do what my family does. Neither did I ask you to specifically give this amount or that amount to the church. Therefore, the question that I raised this morning is about corporate application as a whole church. Are there any takeaways for us corporately as a church as a result of studying 1 Corinthians for the past six months? Just so you know, the decision to do a sermon series on 1 Corinthians was not arbitrary. It was not an accident. It was not arbitrary. It was a prayerful and collaborative decision by the elder board and the pastoral team, which of course included Pastor Jeremy. The decision was based on where we are as a church, where we want to go, and what we need to move forward. Over the past two years, a considerable amount of time has been devoted to setting up the church to succeed in its next chapter. This past Sunday, for example, at the annual business meeting, the church membership, by a vote of 98%, approved a revised constitution that had not been revised since the founding of the church. It is a constitution that describes who we are as a church and why we exist. Our name, the name of the church is there. We are Midland Evangelical Free Church located in the town of Midland, Michigan. We belong to a denomination called the Evangelical Free Church of America, or EFCA. As a result, we have adopted its statement of faith and upon its recommendation, written a statement on gender, marriage, and sexuality and placed it for the first time in the revised constitution. And we exist to worship and glorify God and proclaim the gospel to all people everywhere. Last year, by a 94% vote, the church membership approved the revised bylaws. Whereas the constitution describes who, the who and the why, who we are as a church and why we exist, the bylaws specifies the how, how we would carry out the purpose of our existence, namely our mission. It is in the bylaws that we have spelled out the details of how we would govern ourselves, how we would elect our board of elders, how we would accept new members, how we hire staff, how we conduct church discipline, how we conduct business meetings and so on. All of those hows are described in the bylaws. Now this morning, on behalf of the elder board and the pastoral team, I have the privilege of launching the third building block to set up this church to succeed in its next chapter, namely the core values of Midland Evangelical Free Church. And as, we, as, as the sermon unfolds, you will begin to see why we chose to study 1 Corinthians in January. Now there are three of them all of which are beautifully addressed in 1 Corinthians. And that's one reason that we chose 1 Corinthians. Generally speaking, values may be grouped into two categories. Aspirational values and core values. 
Aspiration values are the ones we aspire to achieve. For example, Midland Free aspires to allocate 30% of its annual budget for missions. It's one of the goals. But our current finances are such that we are unable to do so at present. We would continue to aspire to achieve that goal. But in the interim, no one will be blamed or penalized regarding our inability to achieve that goal. That's an aspirational value. In contrast, core values must be achieved no matter what. They cannot be compromised. They cannot be violated. Those compromising or violating are expected to accept responsibility for their error and take corrective action or else be penalized That's the difference. Aspiration is something that we aspire to. If you cannot, that's fine. Nobody is penalized for it. It's nobody's fault. On the other hand, core values must be achieved no matter what. And using these principles, here's how we have defined core values so that we are all on the same page moving forward. Core values are deeply ingrained principles that guide our life together as a local church. Unlike ministry goals and strategies which may change from time to time, core values withstand the test of time and remain unchanged. They must never be compromised. They must never be violated. They demand constant vigilance. They constrain the behavior of those who call Middle Evangelical Free Church their home church. We repent if we violate them. Refusal to repent may result in church discipline. That's the definition of core values. And with this definition in hand, the elder board and the pastoral team studied the scriptures and developed three core values for our church. Namely, unity within the church, pursuit of holiness, and sound doctrine. Going forward, these are the three core values that would define who we are. We will never compromise and we would never violate them. In the sermon this morning, I will present them to you one by one. And please note this, that all three are of equal importance. Therefore, the order in which I present them should not be taken as they are order of importance. They are all of equal importance. I'm simply presenting them in the order in which they are addressed in 1 Corinthians. The first one. Unity within the church. The Apostle Paul addresses this in the first chapter itself of 1 Corinthians. For example, in verses, beginning in verse 10, this is what he says. Again, you will see these verses up on the screen. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. 
For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The Corinthian church was divided based on whom they followed. Whether Apollos or Paul or Cephas or Christ. And as a result, they were fighting with each other. The apostle calls for unity based on the fact that Christ is not divided. Then in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, he writes this. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now in these verses, the word you in the Greek language is plural. So when I, when I read this, if you said that you are God's temple, and if you said, oh, I am God's temple, that's not what this verse says. The you is plural, which means the phrases like you are God's temple and, and God's spirit dwells in you refer to the whole congregation. So this whole congregation is God's temple, and the Holy Spirit dwells in this whole congregation. It is true that it, the Holy Spirit dwells in individuals. But what Paul is talking about is the whole church and the whole congregation. And here's the most important point. Disrupting the unity of the local church is a serious offense that God will actually destroy anyone who destroys the church. That's what it says. Then in one of his other epistles, Titus chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul says this. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Therefore, by pulling all of these teachings together, we have defined unity within the church as follows. Here it is. The Bible speaks of the importance of maintaining unity within each congregation. And there are some references, so you could look it up. It's also, by the way, in the insert that we have placed in your bulletin. The Bible instructs to warn the divisive people once or twice. If they do not repent, have nothing to do with them because such people are warped and sinful. That's what the Bible says. So this is our first core value that will guide our life together as a church going forward. Now at this point you may wonder if you can ever disagree with anything here at the church. Right? The answer is absolutely yes. Because there's a huge difference between disagreement and divisiveness. 
in disagreement, this disagreeing parties are still meeting and talking with each other. Each side expresses its own views firmly, but they do so in a manner respectful of the other side. No personal attacks are levied against the people on the other side. Instead, they focus on the content of their disagreement with the goal of reaching a solution. Sometimes a resolution may not be possible. Still, the two sides can respectfully agree to disagree and remain friends afterwards. That's disagreement. On the other hand, in divisiveness, the two sides are in conflict. They do not talk directly with one another. Instead, they go behind their backs on each other, talk with everyone else to enlist others and build momentum for their cause. Their goal is to win. So they levy personal attack against people on the other side. If they do not win, they leave the church. That's the difference between disagreement and divisiveness. This core value, unity within the church, welcomes disagreement, but rejects divisiveness. Earlier I said to you that 98% and 94% voted for the revised constitution and bylaws respectively. This obviously meant that 2% and 6% respectively did not vote for those changes. They said no. Those in disagreement attended the elder board forums, expressed their views respectfully, and exercised their right to vote no at their respective business meetings. And I know of them. And I have talked to them. And they are still here at the church as active members loving God and loving the people that God has placed in this church. That's the mark of a healthy church. And that's what we want here at Midland Free going forward. And as you see, the first core value really flows from First Corinthians that we have taken the time to study for the past six months. Second core value, pursuit of holiness. And this is addressed in chapters 5 and 6 of First Corinthians. For example, in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought he not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Then dropping down to verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And then verse 13. Purge the evil person from among you. You know, the Apostle Paul is outraged that the Corinthian church has not disciplined the sexually immoral man. He calls on them to expel this man from their fellowship and deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Hopefully he will learn 
and then eternally he might be saved. That's the point. And then chapter 6, verses 15 through 20, here's what he writes. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. That's the, that's the imperative there. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know? Now in this one, the you is singular. So that is applies to everybody. Individually. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. In these verses the Apostle Paul tells them about the seriousness of sexual sin. And calls them to sexual purity. Then. Just to make sure that no one gets the idea that only sexual sin is bad. The Apostle Paul includes other sins in verses 9 through 11 in the same chapter. And here it is, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolatrous, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. These verses call on believers who have been justified, who have been sanctified, who have been washed by the blood of Jesus to pursue holiness and glorify God as a result. So, pulling all of this together, we have defined pursuit of holiness as follows. Here it is up on the screen. God, who is holy, commands us to be holy. There are some references to that. We are to confess our sins to each other and pray for each other. The Bible teaches that those in ongoing sin are not born of God and will not inherit God's kingdom. These are scriptures. We are to call such people to repent. If they do not repent, treat them as pagans or expel them from fellowship. That's what the Bible says. One of the objections often made regarding holiness is that we can never be completely holy on this side of heaven. In this line of reasoning, we are left to wonder why God said what he said. God, for example, through, the, through his apostle Peter, says in 1 Peter, first, uh, first Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 15, Be holy because I am holy. 
We have to wrestle with that. How do we ignore something like that that is so obvious, so explicit, so straightforward? In his excellent book, The Hole in Our Holiness, which is a book that I have just finished reading, by the way. It's a very small book by Kevin DeYoung. He addresses this particular objection and says that the the Holy Spirit power that was strong enough to raise Jesus from the dead, that was strong enough to save us from our sin, is strong enough to empower us to pursue holiness. And therefore, if we ever find ourselves saying, you know what, I, on this side of heaven, I could never be holy, and therefore, you know, let me do whatever, and, you know, and things of that kind, I would encourage you to read this particular book. It's a fantastic book. It's, it has only about 150 or some pages. And I wish I could tell you more about this book, because it's another sermon in and of itself. But here's what he says, you know. He says that we must believe... That Holy Spirit-empowered pursuit of holiness is possible. Holiness is progress, not perfection. And many Christians are stalled because of this disbelief. Somehow we cannot be holy on this side of heaven Oh, the power of the, they don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to continue to sanctify us and make us progress in our holiness. And then he goes on to say, says, some people are just lazy. They, don't want, they just don't want to do it. And their lack of effort also contributes to lack of pursuit of holiness. So if you are looking for one book to read in the summer, Kevin DeYoung's book on the whole in our holiness would have my highest recommendation. So, so far we have presented two core values, namely unity within the church and pursuit of holiness. And again, those two, as, I have, as we have defined, as the elder board has designed, core values means that they will never be compromised. They will never be violated. And those who are violating would be called to repent. An absence of repentance might lead to church discipline. And the two that I have presented, they are scriptural. We are not making it up. The elder board is not making it up. The pastoral team is not making it up. They are scriptural. God has said those. Now the third one. Sound doctrine. The Apostle Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in the first eight verses, he defines what the gospel is. And so chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, And by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Unless you believe in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance. But I also received. And here's the gospel. 
that is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. That's the gospel. Notice that the, the, the gospel is of first importance. It is not second. It is not third. It is not fourth. It is the first importance. This means that it is an essential doctrine of the church. There can be only one view regarding it. Not two, not three, not four. But one view. That Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he, ha- he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to many giving proof that he was indeed alive. Only one view. No other view is allowed. Similarly, beginning in verse 12, the apostle expounds on another essential doctrine, namely the resurrection of the dead. And here it is, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And here again, there can be only one position. He asks the question, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And that is an essential doctrine of the church. However, when it came to non-essentials, such as eating food sacrificed to idols... The apostle gives freedom or liberty to believers. For example, in chapter, chapter 8, verse, verse 8. And he talks about you know, eating food sacrificed to idols. And if your conscience is clear, go ahead and eat. And if, if somebody told you that this has already been sacrificed to idols, don't eat. You know, all of those elaborate things that we looked at and we studied as part of the First Corinthians. And he comes and sums it up this way. We are no worse off if we do not eat. And no better off. If you do it, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So, in non-essential doctrines, there is liberty, there is freedom. But with freedom comes responsibility. Make sure that it is not a stumbling block for a weak brother or a sister. And then Paul goes on to say in chapter 9, beginning in verse 19, his own flexibility regarding non-essentials. And here it is. For though I am free from all, he, he, that's how he starts. He says, yeah, I am free regarding non-essential doctrines. I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. 
to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people regarding non-essentials, not about the essentials, regarding non-essential, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Our denomination, the EFCA, has a slogan regarding these matters, and here's how it goes. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, charity. In all things, Jesus Christ. In essentials, unity. Only one view. In non-essentials, charity. We give freedom to each other. In all things, Jesus Christ. Now, if you grab your insert and turn to the table that has a uh, uh, title there, Sound Doctrine. The EFCA has put doctrines in three categories. And you will see that on the column that says order. Areas of stated EFCA positions, they have clearly, regarding the essential doctrines, they have taken the position, and there can be only one position and nothing else. And if we disagree with any of those, then we as a church need to leave the EFCA. And so those doctrines clearly stated in the EFCA, statement of faith or position paper. So for example, the 10-point statement of faith that was put in the Uh, in our constitution last week, that's their statement of faith. And then they have written a commentary on the ten points. And they have also published a book called Evangelical Convictions. We have put some copies in the library, so take a look at them and read them. And it's a big explanation uh, regarding all of those points. Sanctity of life, no to abortion and euthanasia. Yes to traditional marriage and no to homosexuality. Very clear. Then there's the areas of flexibility. In these ones, the EFCA has allowed flexibility. They have taken more than one position. They have accepted more than one position. And they do not want us to break fellowship as a result of that. And to coexist in EFCA churches. Calvinism and Arminianism. Infant and believer's baptism. The Lord's Supper, they have rejected two of them. The Catholic view, the consubstantiation, the transubstantiation, they have rejected, but they have the reform view and the Zwinglian view. I wish I could spend a lot of time here explaining those to you, but we need to move on because of the time. At the the business meeting, somebody stood up and asked the question because the 10-point statement has has stated premillennialism. And so somebody asked the question, is that an essential doctrine that I have to subscribe to or I'm out? And in fact, the EFCA... When they revised their 10-point statement in 2008, the first draft did not have the premillennial position. But they did not get the two-third vote to pass the revised statement of faith. And therefore they put it back again. But when they put it back again, what they did was they gave flexibility to the church. 
For example, EFCA would not ordain pastors who are not pre-millennial, but they would allow those pastors to go through the process and let the individual churches ordain them. And so you need to know that's an area in which our church is very flexible. You don't have to be primal to be part of the membership of this church. Women in ministry, I'll say that in a, in a, in a second. And then church membership. In other words, what it is is that, you know, for example, if you are not a church member, we are not going to treat you as second class citizens. We are not. We would invite you to be part of this membership of the church, but we will not treat you as second class citizens. Now, the third area is area of silence. And they call this the significance of silence. In other words, they, it's, not that, it's not an accident that they are silent. They are intentionally silent. Meaning, don't fight over this. Details regarding creation, young earth versus old age, local flood versus universal flood, capital punishment, war, reproductive technologies, genetic engineering, what kind of Bible translation to use. You know, all of these, they are intentionally silent. And therefore, whereas we we need to be united about the essentials, the first row, the EFCA says, extend charity regarding the other two boxes. Now let me say one thing to you as well. As an elder board, we have had long conversations about this. In the areas of unity where the, the, the EFCA has stated positions, we have no flexibility as a church. If you want to remain in the EFCA, we remain in the EFCA by subscribing to their essential doctrines. There's no room. If you disagree, we leave the, leave the denomination. But in the areas of Charity, those two, the church has flexibility to take positions. Okay, for example, let's say, you know, Calvinism and Arminianism, a church can choose to take, narrow it down and take a position if it wants to. In fact, in terms of women in ministry, this church had taken that position. For example, the EFCA, in, uh, EFCA for example, has women in its boards. From the national office to the, to the district office, you know, they, women can serve on the board. But through our bylaws, this church had chosen not to do that. So there's the area of flexibility. But this church, Midland Evangelical Free Church, chose to narrow it down. And there's flexibility. And, that, and, the church, and the EFCA discourages that, but the churches can do that. Because you give charity. Because they have to give charity to the churches as well. And for example, Kim Goodnight, who's our director of children's ministry, she performs all the pastoral functions. But this church has put it in its bylaws saying that when women occupying the pastoral level positions will be called directors and not pastors. And that's within the right. Okay? And, and, and so one of the things that the elder board has said to itself is that if ever the elder board wants to, Narrow these positions where charity is given, they will do this through the constitution or the bylaws. Not on their own. You have to put it down either in the constitution or in the bylaws. A group of men will never sit in a boardroom and make the decision for this church. And that is the promise that the elder board is making going forward. If any of these positions and narrowed, if there's ever a decision to narrow any of these positions, 
the elder board will come before the membership, either through the constitution or through the bylaws. Clear? In that way, there is accountability. The elder board is accountable to the membership. And there's buying. For example, you know, 98% of the people voted for the, uh, for the revision of the constitution. 94% voted for the revision of the bylaws. Large majority of the people have buy-in. They are, we are all in together, and that is a promise that the elder board is making to you. And as I'm putting it all of this together, here's how we have defined sound doctrine. And this, is, this has been put in the Constitution. This ten-point doctrinal statement is narrow in its essential, but broad in its non-essentials. In the essential doctrine, the church shall exhibit unity and allow no room for more than one view. In the non-essentials, the areas in which the evangelical free church of America has permitted more than one position or chosen not to take any official position, which is referred to as significance of silence, the church shall exhibit charity and not use such minor doctrinal issues as a test for membership and full participation. And therefore, again, all of these teachings come together in this definition regarding sound doctrine. The Bible instructs us to persist in sound doctrine because if we do, we will save both ourselves and our hearers. Further, the Bible warns us to watch out for teachers of false doctrines and rebuke them. If they do not repent, keep away from them. That's the definition. So again, if you, if you need more information than what I have presented here, please refer to the book, Evangelical Convictions, that was written by the EFCA. And we have placed several copies in the bylaws. There you have it. The three core values that will define how we do our life together as a local church. It will hold us accountable. It draws a boundary. And it calls us accountable. We hold each other accountable. I want you to hold me accountable. And then vice versa. So on behalf of the elder board and the pastoral team, as we bring conclusion to 1 Corinthians, I invite you to be all in regarding these core values as we move forward as a local church. That's why we did 1 Corinthians. That's why we spent six months. And here are the takeaways. And if the elder board is violating any of these, hold them accountable. In the same way, allow the elder board to hold us accountable as a congregation when we violate them as well. Let's pray.